I would invite you to turn in your copy of the scriptures with me to Hebrews chapter number 10, the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter number 10. This Christmas season, I am making an effort to prepare and to preach the Christmas message in fresh, creative ways. And I challenged myself to think beyond the primary narratives that are given to us in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke and present the the Christmas story from different places in the Bible, from different perspectives in the Bible. And, And that's where I really seized on the notion of perspective, the idea of perspective. Perspective is a point of view that provides additional understanding of a matter because of that point of view. For example, we are all here this morning together in the same room looking at the very same people at the very same time. However, what you see and what I see are very different. You are looking at the backs of one another's heads while I am looking at your faces. And while you see some are nodding in agreement with what I say, I can see that they are actually already falling asleep, you see? (laughs) Perspective. Perspective is a a point of view that also allows for a different interpretation of of a matter. For example, we are here in the same room together at the same time, and we are looking at this same glass of water. Some of you see this glass as half full. Others of you see this glass as half empty. It's a matter of perspective and interpretation. And perspective does not change the truth of a matter. But it helps us to better appreciate or more fully gain the the reality of a matter because of a point of view. And so with that in mind, I, I began to brainstorm about the different perspectives on the Christmas story and thought of preaching from the perspectives of different characters of the Christmas story. For example, we would of course first think of Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. What was Mary's perspective, her point of view, on the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Early on, we know that she sang a song of celebration. We know it as Mary's Magnificant, and she rejoiced in the privilege of bearing the Christ child. But in Luke 2, verse 19, the Bible tells us that after Jesus' birth, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. So it is only with a bit of sanctified speculation that we could know for certain Mary's perspective on the Christmas event, or I could preach a message titled Christmas According to Mary. And so I thought of a a different Bible character of the Christmas story. There there were the shepherds. The shepherds were out in the the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. The, The sky split open and the angels announced Jesus' birth. The, the, the shepherds hurried to the little town of Bethlehem and saw the Christ child wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. What might the shepherd's perspective on the Christmas story be? Well, Luke 2 verse 17 tells us that after they had seen Jesus, they made widely known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. They didn't ponder these things in their heart as Mary did, but rather they blabbed to everyone about Jesus' birth. And so with a bit of sanctified speculation, I could preach a message titled, Christmas According to the Shepherds. Christmas according to Mary, Christmas according to the shepherds. How about Christmas according to Joseph? 
How about Elizabeth and, and Zechariah? What about the innkeeper? Now there's no biblical record of an innkeeper, but there was an inn, no room in the inn, so assuming there was an innkeeper, what was the perspective of the innkeeper? How about the magi, the, the wise men? Last week I presented the perspective of John the Baptist who, who when he first met Jesus, unborn, John the Baptist leaped in Mary's or in Elizabeth's womb because of his introduction of Jesus. But then later in his life, near the end of his life, John the Baptist questioned if Jesus was the one. And then, of course, it occurs to me, what about Jesus? What was the perspective of Jesus on the Christmas event, as I've written there at the top of your notes, what would Jesus say about his own coming, about his own birth, if he were telling the Christmas story? But in Jesus' case, we don't need sanctified speculation to know Jesus' perspective because we are told of Jesus' perspective. We are told of what Jesus said about his own birth in Hebrews 10, verse number five. Therefore, when he, that's Jesus, came into the world, when Jesus came into the world, he said. This is, if you will, the mind and the mouth of Jesus when he was born. This is the Christmas story according to Christ. Let's pray briefly, and then we'll look at Hebrews 10 for the Christmas story according to Christ. God in heaven, we thank you so much for your great love for us, the love that sent Jesus to earth to be born as a baby and to go to the cross and to die as the paschal lamb, to rise from the grave victorious over death. And Lord, then to return someday as King of kings and Lord of lords. I pray, God, that you would give us insight and understanding, give us perspective new and fresh perspective for a fuller understanding of the Christmas story this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter number 10. I'd like to begin reading in verse number one, verses one through four, to establish the context of our conversation this morning. Hebrews 10 verse one, for the law, that is the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. At issue here is the efficacy of the Old Testament sacrificial system that was insufficient to fully and finally atone for sin because every year, year after year, sacrifices needed to be offered again and again. The author of Hebrews tells us that those things were simply a shadow of what was to come in verse number one. One commentator put it this way, the shadow of a key cannot unlock a prison door. The shadow of a meal cannot satisfy a hungry man. The shadow of Calvary cannot take away sin. And the Old Testament sacrificial system was the shadow 
of the cross, the shadowy exercise of sacrificing bulls and goats and lambs was not sufficient to fully or finally take away the sin of man. So Hebrews 10 verse number 5 tells us, therefore when he, when Jesus Christ came into the world, this is the Christmas event, Hebrews 10 verse number 5. This is when the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1 verse 14. When Jesus was born, he said something. He spoke regarding his coming. This is Christmas according to Christ. What did Jesus say about his birth? What does he tell us about his birth? Number one in your notes, if you're following the outline I've prepared and presented, Jesus was born, number one, to fulfill the will of God. Christmas according to Christ is this. Jesus came to fulfill the will of God. Look at verse five and follow as I continue reading. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written, to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Use your sanctified imagination with me this morning and envision an inter-Trinitarian conversation between God the Father and God the Son at some point before the foundations of the world in eternity past. At some point, God the Father expressed and explained to God the Son his will. That he, God the Father, would have God the Son leave the glories of heaven and become a man, take on flesh, have a body, verse number five, and come to this earth. Letter A, to be born as a man. Jesus came in fulfillment of God's will to be born as a man. It was the will of God the Father that God the Son be born in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8, that is with a body, Hebrews 10, verse number 5, God became a man. Think about that for a moment. God became a man. In his great Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Charles Wesley has written this, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. And so the infant baby was the infinite God. The infant baby becoming an infinite God was the infinite God is a logical impossibility, but that is a theological truth that is fundamental to the Christian faith. Theologians call it the hypostatic union of Christ, that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, fully God and fully man. And historically, it was best articulated at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. And at that time, great men of faith assembled to affirm this truth of the incarnation of, of Jesus Christ. I've copied it for you there in the back of your notes from 451 AD. 
allow me to, to read this, to read what they wrote. They, they wrote, therefore, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of the Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and substance, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from the earliest times spoke of him and our Lord Jesus Christ taught, himself taught us. Folks, that is one sentence. <laughs> That is one very long sentence. It's it's an enormous body of truth to wrap your mind around. However, this is the best that man has been able to do in explaining the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ at Christmas time. This is the, the theological explanation of what happened at Christmas but you see, the, the Christmas story is not a quaint, sentimental story about shepherds and sheep and starry skies and swaddling cloths. It's that God became man, letter A. Also then, letter B, to die as a lamb. To die as a lamb. To be born as a man. To die as a lamb. It was the will of God that his son die as a lamb. Now, not a lamb as in the burnt offerings and sacrifices of sin, verse number six, that had been offered by Israel's priests for centuries, year after year after year, but a lamb, the lamb, whose body was offered once for all, verse number 10 tells us there at the end of verse 10, once for all. So from Jesus' perspective, Jesus' perspective, he was born as a man, to die as a lamb, for that was his father's will. And Jesus said that repeatedly in the Gospels that he had come to do his father's will. In John 4, 30, 34, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. In John six thirty eight, Jesus said, for I am come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. When Jesus came to this world, he said that he would do and fulfill the will of God. That was Jesus' perspective on Christmas. What else did Jesus tell us? Look again at verse number nine. Hebrews 10, verse number nine. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second, that's number two in your notes, to replace the old sacrificial system. Jesus was born, number two, to replace the old sacrificial system. And it's most logical to us, it makes sense to us, that to make way for something new, you should take away the old. 
The old covenant with Israel was marked by old sacrifices that had to be removed before there could be room for something new. After all, the old system, the old sacrifices were only a shadow. They were only a type that anticipated the necessity of something better. And the author of Hebrews, through the book of Hebrews, has been arguing with his, believer, with, with his readers not to return to the old because the new had come. It was Isaac Watts in 1709 that wrote the hymn titled, Not All the Blood of Beasts. Listen to this hymn. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. The good news? But Christ the heavenly lamb takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. And so for that reason, Paul wrote in Romans 10 verse 4, Christ is the end of the law, that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Jesus was born to replace the old sacrificial system. That was Jesus' perspective. That's why he came. Verse number 10, Hebrews 10, verse number 10. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Number three, Jesus came to sanctify believers. He came to sanctify believers. And there is a theological thread that is, that is found throughout the book of Hebrews. It's the idea of sanctification. It's hagiadzo in the Greek. And, and listen to these references from Hebrews, just the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 2 verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason Christ is not ashamed to call them brethren. Here in chapter 10, verse 10, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. If you look ahead to chapter 10, verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Chapter 10, verse 29, by which he was sanctified. There the end of the verse. Hebrews 13, verse number 12, therefore Jesus also that he may sanctify the people with his own blood he suffered. And when we think of, of Christ's sacrifice, his death on the cross, we think of it most often as only accomplishing our justification. However, Jesus coming, his death on the cross also accomplished our sanctification both positionally and progressively. Study Romans chapter 6. Sanctification of believers describes the work of God's spirit from before one's conversion all the way to the point of one's glorification. So the pronouncement and the process of sanctification sets us apart as holy before the Lord. And Jesus came as a baby to be born in Bethlehem to sanctify believers completely. That was his purpose and his goal from his perspective. Look at verse 11. Hebrews 10 verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Number four, Jesus was born to end all other sacrifices. Verse four is not unlike I'm sorry, Roman numeral number four is not unlike Roman numeral number two. Number two, to replace the old sacrificial system. Number four, to end all other sacrifices. 
And historically, many priests offered many sacrifices for many people for many years. The historian Josephus, Jewish historian, reported that more than 200,000 people each year would assemble on the 35-acre site that we know as the Temple Mount, that Temple Mount area, where some have estimated that at Passover time as many as 300,000 lambs would be slain within a week. 300,000 lambs within a week would be slain. Think about the logistics of that temple operation. And then Jesus came. Some people lost their jobs, if you know what I mean. Because no longer were sacrifices necessary. No matter how efficient they were or sophisticated they were at offering their sacrifices, those sacrifices were ineffective and insufficient because those sacrifices never ended. But then Jesus came. And Jesus, that one priest, offered himself as the one lamb once for all. And so alas, there's no need for a temple to stand on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem at this time, Hebrews 9, 11 told us that Jesus is the high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation. Jesus was born to end all sacrifices. Verse 14, verse 14, for by one offering he perfected forever those who are being sanctified Number five in your notes, Jesus was born to, number five, to perfect believers. To perfect believers. And number five in your notes is not unlike number three. In fact, I've drawn a line in my my copy of my notes. Number three and number five are the same. Number two and number four are the same. I drew a line between two and four and between three and five. We're we're simply restating these same truths again. Jesus was born to perfect believers, number five. Positionally, we are complete in Christ because of Jesus' coming. We might even say that in Christ we are positionally today as perfect as we will ever be because we are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 14, some English translations, including my own, seem to suggest a, a passive, progressive process to this perfection or to this sanctification. We are being made holy or we are being sanctified. And, and there is an aspect to, to that. However, the, the stress of this sanctification is something that has already been fully affected by the blood of Christ. In the mind of God, the work he has begun has already been completed. Jesus was born for our sanctification, our complete sanctification. Jesus was born for our perfection, our complete perfection. That's Jesus' perspective on the Christmas story. Finally, verses 15 and following, but the Holy Spirit, verse 15, also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and And in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Here the author of Hebrews is citing the prophet Jeremiah, but he's ascribing it to the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit that's the witness in verse 15. And this is the promise of the new covenant with Israel, which is 
like the, the, the benefits and the blessings that we also receive in Christ. And first and foremost, that benefit or that blessing is the forgiveness of sin. So number six, Jesus was born to forgive sins. Folks, this is why Jesus was named Jesus when he was born. Matthew one twenty one tells us, for he shall save his people from their sin. I wonder as a child, when Mary would call to Jesus, Jesus, can you come here? Or Joseph would call to Jesus, Jesus, will you go there? When any one of Jesus' family or friends would address him as Jesus, I wonder if Jesus didn't have just a, a reminder because of the meaning of his name. I am here to forgive and to save people from their sins. That was Jesus' perspective on Christmas, Christmas according to Christ. Now, well, Jesus, in his incarnation, in his coming, in his birth, was born to accomplish these things. From his perspective, this is what Christmas is, is all about. From our perspective, at times, we only look at the manger scene that is printed on the front of the Christmas card. And folks, that is such a flat, two-dimensional point of view. If only we could step into that picture. And in a three-dimensional way, we could turn around and, and see from every point of view what was happening on that Christmas day. If only we could see through the eyes of our Lord Jesus Christ and fully understand the reason for his coming. But as I conclude, there's one more angle of Jesus' perspective of Christmas that is not addressed in this text. We know from Hebrews 10, verse number five, therefore when he came into the world, he said these things, clearly articulating his perspective. But there's one more perspective, not here in this text. It's, it's a perspective I wanna leave you with, Christmas according to Christ. It's, it's provided for us in John chapter one, verse 11, where the Bible says this. The Bible says Jesus came to his own Jesus was born as a man among men. Jesus was born as a Jew into a Jewish family. Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. That's a heartbreaking perspective. From Jesus' perspective, in coming to this earth as a man, as a Jew, as the promised Messiah, as the Lamb of God, but his own did not receive him. From Jesus' perspective, he was not welcomed into this world. From Jesus' perspective, as the prophet Isaiah prophesied, he was despised and rejected of men. And yet Jesus came anyway to redeem us. God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us in our sin. He came to us in our sin knowing that we would reject him. That's Christmas according to Christ.
And of course, this morning as we approach a a new Christmas day, a new holiday, and as we see Christmas from a commercial perspective, from a familial perspective, from a logistical perspective, may we be careful to remember Christmas from Christ's perspective. He came to those that would reject him. He came to die for those that would despise him. He came because he loved us and determined to redeem us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we can't begin to appreciate your perspective on Christmas. But because of your great love for us, you sent your son to redeem us. Lord, I pray that you would make us mindful of that point of view even this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.